Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Josh Friedman, who's an American journalist traveling the world, producing reports on international news and geopolitics. You can find him all over the place at freemanpost.com, nomadicjournalism.com, over at We Are Change on uh, Twitter at Freeman Reporter on YouTube at Josh Friedman uh, FMP. Good to have you on Geopolitics and Empire, Josh. Thank you, Hervoya. Very nice to join you. Yeah, I've been following uh, your work for a while uh, with We Are Change and, and your independent work, and, and you're all over the place. But uh, you've been uh, busy tra traveling everywhere, U.S., Ukraine, I think, uh, Turkey. Um, has it been difficult traveling in the age of the crown virus? Well, I was going to say less so over the past couple of years, or maybe at this point it's been a few years, less so over the past two, three years have I been traveling everywhere. But yeah, there have been a lot of difficulties, not, not as much in recent weeks, although maybe we'll touch a bit on inflation, the, the prices, the prices of air travel, and I mean, just about everything are skyrocketing. So that's been the latest wrinkle. But yeah, during, uh, during peak COVID restrictions, travel was not nearly as fun as it had been for me in years past. Lot, lots of difficulties, but I managed. Yeah, I, uh, I, that I can uh, imagine. And, uh, you know, one of the first things I wanted to ask you about was your coverage of uh, Bilderberg. I think it was a few months uh, ago. And I've been following Bilderberg reports, as have many, for over a decade now. And during the pandemic, Bilderberg didn't meet. Uh, but then earlier this year, in 2022, uh, out of the blue, they got together, I think, in Washington. Uh, and I believe you were there. Uh, I saw uh, a clip uh, with you and Max Blumenthal. Uh, among perhaps a few others, but I, I didn't really see many uh, in the independent media covering it. It was kind of sad to see little coverage of Bilderberg this year. But you know, how did you find out? Uh, how many folks uh, like you were uh, on the ground there, and sort of what's what's your takeaway of what happened in Bilderberg? A message from our sponsors. It seems we may be headed for the 1930s all over again: financial collapse, tyranny, and world war. I've already secured multiple passports, offshore accounts, safe havens, and escaped to the sunnier shores of Mexico. My friend Mikkel Thorup of the Expat Money Show is hosting the Expat Money Summit with 30-plus experts that'll help you reclaim freedom in this fourth turning by moving your life and wealth offshore. Themes include securing your Plan B bug-out location, banking offshore, reducing your tax burden legally, storing precious metals, getting another passport, and more. Protect yourself and secure a new life abroad. Register now for free at expatmoneysummit.com or don't and enjoy surviving on insect protein while stuck in the metaverse. And don't forget to fund Geopolitics and Empire. You can leave a donation, except on Patreon or PayPal, which have banned us, book a consultation, or become a member. Well, like you said, there weren't so many. They're covering it. And to, to most people, it did totally come out of the blue. Bilderberg had previously last met in 2019 in Switzerland, then they took off 2020 and 2021. I was very confident that they were going to meet this year. However, no one, myself included, did any proper sleuthing. And somehow Bilderberg this year managed to announce that they were meeting in Washington, D.C., after the conference had already started. So even in re recent years, when things have been a bit more secretive than in the past, they've been announcing 
publicly via their press release and whatnot, give or take 48 hours in advance, which for most people is not enough time to get there, but for some people it is. But this time they kept things so hush-hush that they announced that the meeting was starting, I believe on Thursday afternoon, the meetings are usually Thursday through Sunday or Sunday's travel days, Thursday through Saturday, everyone describe it. So they announced it on Thursday afternoon after presumably most participants had already arrived. It was an extremely late announcement that coupled with the fact that many people are dealing with COVID restrictions or some were dealing with COVID restrictions. Some couldn't even get there who wanted to get there and travel is just more complicated nowadays. So what ended up happening, as you alluded to, was quite bizarre. They met not in their usual DC location, which is just outside of DC in Chantilly, Virginia, but this time they met right in the heart of DC, right at the National Mall, right beside the National Mall, uh, in a direct line to the Capitol. It was the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. There was a cover story <laughs> at the hotel as well. Maybe you wanna get into that, maybe not. And there was almost no one there on the outside except the usuals, the, the security, the police, the blacked out vehicles. Like you said, Max Blumenthal showed up briefly, maybe a couple times briefly. I, I was there Friday morning through the rest of the conference. So Friday morning through Sunday afternoon. And for most of the time that I was there, I was one of two or three observers on the outside. In fact, for the first day, very, very briefly, a photojournalist showed up on a particular assignment. He left, and other than him, I didn't see anyone else out there. There was no one else standing out there reporting on it with me on the first day, and then on the second day and third day, at some points, there'd be two people, sometimes three, sometimes four. So considering that it was right in the middle of DC and how many world leaders or very influential people were gathered there on the inside, it was a truly bizarre sight. You know, one view that I've had regarding Bilderberg is that it seems Bilderberg still retains an important logistical uh, um, function or hub but that it has been overshadowed by the World Economic Forum because it seems they're really going operational with many aspects uh, of their plans. How do you sort of view uh, Bilderberg's importance now in light of what we're seeing with the Great Reset and, and Cobra Commander Klaus Schwab and, and Davos and all of this? Well, I think what you're describing has a lot to do with the blowback from the announcement of the great reset plans if i mean if they even are formal plans still at this point i don't fall i don't follow the world economic forum or at least i don't cover them as closely as i do bilderberg i've been to some world economic forum side event or two at a eu conference in the balkans before but i've never actually been to davos i've been i've been to bilderberg in switzerland though but in the past couple years over the past couple years the world economic forum has garnered so much attention and largely negative attention because yeah it's been announced in one way or another that there's an agenda for for people to own nothing and, <laughs> and be happy and that caused understandably a lot of people to flip out and suddenly the world economic forum came under a microscope and lots of people who view uh, 
global or some might call them globalist organizations with a very negative light. They became enraged and they started talking all the time about the World Economic Forum. And Bilderberg, you could say because of that, or you could say for other reasons, has been able to uh, maintain more of that privacy or that secrecy that they so enjoy. But even still, they, they have different functions. They're there, there's a lot of crossover in terms of participants and ideology and discussion and format between the two, but uh, at least comparing the Davos event to the annual Bilderberg meeting, but they, they also function quite differently. So Bilderberg is an off-the-record conference and Davos every year, which is the main World Economic Forum event, that that's happens in the public view. I mean, most people aren't going to buy a plane ticket to Switzerland and pay $50 for a sandwich so they could eat lunch there. But uh, yeah, the, the, the forums or fora are, are live streams and there's a, there's a much clearer understanding from people like you and I, or at least much, we have much more ability to monitor what's happening at Davos than what's happening at Bilderberg. And yeah, many people still have never even heard of Bilderberg. And I, I know you were on the outside there at the Bilderberg meeting, and it's, I mean, you're not privy to much uh, information, but I don't know, just, just being there, were you able to glean, I don't know, any, any feeling or intuition or, I mean, they did publish the topics uh, on their website that they you know, supposedly we're discussing, uh, you know, what, what takeaway do you have from Bilderberg this year? And, 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 you know, in the context of everything that's going on globally, sort of what's your feeling of wh where we're uh, at at this juncture uh, in time? Well, standing on the outside, you always get, you always get some sort of feeling, some sort of intuition. There are often some wild things that happen, like, Myself and others have gotten some pretty rough treatment from police in the past. That was not the case this year. I was, I admit, even though I was expecting the conference to take place, I was caught off guard. I could have done more to prepare this year, even though I got there probably, I guess, faster than anyone. But I've had, I've had better years journalistically in that there have been other years where I've been able to glean a lot more strong information. So after uh, after the 2019 event, there was information that came out both in the way of a participant uh, actually publishing it, which was a bit unexpected. Although in my opinion, it, it was actually in line with their rules. They just shone, shone upon that. But then also I was able to conduct uh, some off the record interviews. So I had a much better understanding of what was discussed on the inside the last time in 2019. Not so this year. However, this year, like you said, in the context of Ukraine and world events, there are things that you can glean. This year, as has been the case quite often uh, in recent years, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO chief, was there. This year, also, Santa Marin, the Finnish prime minister, was there. Not only did they both attend, they actually met with one another. This was, this was prior to, to Finland's, uh, Finland, Sweden's bids formally going through and them joining NATO. So at this point, 
it was still in the process and Turkey had their reservations about it. So it was up in the air. And lo and behold, during the Bilderberg meeting, Stoltenberg tweeted out a photo of him meeting with Santa Marin at the conference. You could tell exactly where it was. Well, later on, I went into the hotel and I could tell exactly where it was. It was at the hotel garden. And he flat out tweeted that they were discussing uh, they were discussing Finland and Sweden's bid to join NATO, which was a bit odd because the Bilderberg organizers claim and state publicly that everyone is there in private capacity, that they're not there in their former roles. They're, so if they're NATO chief, they're not there as NATO chief. They're just there as Jens Stoltenberg. They're not there as the prime minister of Finland. They're there as Santa Marin, although quite often the governments put out information contradicting that, but that's a bit of a tangent. So there are obviously important NATO discussions uh, taking place there. There's obviously stuff uh, with regard to Ukraine being discussed there. There were two, I didn't, I don't believe I ever saw them, but there were two Ukrainian officials who were on the attendance list. Uh, one was the head, head of Naftogaz and the other was the Ukrainian ambassador to the US. So that is unusual. Once in a while, someone from outside of the general Western Atlanticist countries gets invited, but it's not too often. And this year, that obviously happened in the context of the events in Ukraine. So th there were a lot of interesting things that appeared on the, the topics list. You can never know for sure if what they're discussing is in line with the topics list, but this year it wouldn't surprise me whatsoever if the discussions that took place inside the meeting were very similar to what's on the topics list. And yeah, you could, you could infer from that that there's a lot of concern, at least that, that would be my inference, that uh, a lot of the institutions and the... Uh, global frameworks that have been developed uh, by people who attend a lot of conferences like this and rub shoulders with people who are at Bilderberg and Davos, et cetera, that they're probably concerned about uh, how things are going for them. You mentioned uh, Ukraine, and I, I believe looking at your uh, YouTube channel, uh, you were in Ukraine. Uh, you know, how was that? What's the view of people uh, on the ground and sort of what's your view on this situation? It seems like we're in a war of attrition and this is not ending anytime uh, soon. So, you know, your thoughts on the situation in Ukraine. When I was there, it was a much different situation. It was, I would not describe it as a war of attrition at that point. Uh, I'd love to go back. I was there in, well, I've been there many times, but since the war started, I was, I was only there once and it was in early to mid-March. And that was right before the Russians pulled out of the outskirts of Kiev and changed up their, their whole battle strategy. So things were much different. And they, they really looked totally different to me because on my, my final day of reporting near the action, I... I was in Kiev, on the outskirts of Kiev, trying to get into Irpin, trying to get back into Irpin, where I'd been pre the previous day reporting. 
And that was right when the first journalist, American journalist, was killed. And I actually saw his body on the side of the road. Uh, wasn't the most pleasant sight. Very sad to see. And I was stopped by Ukrainian soldiers from going any farther and going back into Irpin because they said the fighting had spread basically just a lot onto that road that leads from Kiev to Irpin. And so I, because of those images and what was happening that day, I, I ended up leaving Kiev with the thought in my mind, like uh, the battle for Kiev is raging on and, and uh, like the, the Russians might flat out storm the city. It, it seemed to be that it, it was, that was on the verge of happening. So when I was there and where things are now, it, things are much different. But I would say that it, if the Russians took a, took a big L, it was, I mean, in the, in the initial rounds, the, the fight in the beginning of the war that they definitely, they, they definitely did a lot of damage on the outskirts of Kiev. I, I was also, uh, yeah, I was, I was in your pin, uh, one of those communities on the outskirts of Kiev um, that saw a lot of fighting. I'm drawing a blank on it, but I was there too. And refugees were flowing out of there. Bodies were flowing out of there. I've seen bodies being carried on stretchers right and left. Like some of them were dead. Some of them were alive. So, I mean, it's not, it's not like the Russians didn't try to do anything there. They really... <laughs> it seemed to me like they were full on gunning for Kiev, at least just from my perspective, being there on the ground and, and they didn't get it and they had to retreat and, and go about a new strategy. And I'm not there in Donbass. I'd, I'd like to go back. Maybe I go back soon. So it's a little hard. It's a little hard for me to say or to give you any firsthand perspective on where, where things are now, but it seems like, uh, Ukrainians are, you, Ukraine wins in some areas, Russia wins in some areas, maybe in the, the broader picture that, that doesn't look so good for Russia because they, I mean, they are the, they started the war that in my mind, they, they are the invaders. So it looked at the beginning, like they're trying to take the capital, trying to replace the government. So maybe in the broader picture, things don't look so great. Or Russia, but I know Ukraine's suffering huge losses in Donbass and uh, incrementally is losing territory. So I guess here we are. Who knows how long it's going to go on? I think it was just reported uh, a few days ago that uh, Russia, I mean, it was reported that a Russian diplomat was saying that they do want regime change and get to get rid of um, Zelensky. I met a young person uh, the other day uh, from Ukraine uh, working here in Croatia, and they told me that. And they're from Kiev, and they said, at least for now, like the situation in Kiev is largely normal. Like their family is back in in Kiev, and people go about their lives normally. So it's kind of as you say, maybe Kiev for now is just has just kind of been left alone, and at least there in that bubble, things are going on uh, as usual. You mentioned uh, refugees, and another topic that you've covered. I think you've been uh, on the border down in uh, my other home of Mexico. I'm a proud. Mexican uh, citizen. And, um, you know, I, th I think this is another issue related to globalism from my perspective, my migration, because 
Um, well, I've been reading that the C- CBP Customs and Border Patrol has had uh, has been having a quarter of a million encounters with migrants monthly, uh, and and I sort of view you know the, the globalist ideology being they they sort of want a multicultural Babylonian type system where they want to break down local and national identity, you know, like Mexican identity, American identity, the ind- individual European uh, identities, because they want to form, you know, pave the way for a supranational uh, identity in the form of regional unions like the EU, like the North American Union. So, you know, apart from poverty and crime in Latin America, that's pushing people to go up north. Uh, I also think the globalists are egging on this uh, migration to to flood uh, the U.S. and y- you've been down. I think also on the Guatemala-Mexico border. Uh, what did you see, and what's sort of your takeaway? Uh, you know, regarding your time there. It's kind of interesting you're asking me about those borders because historically, I've spent far more time on Balkan borders, covering the migrant crisis in uh, southeastern Europe and all over Europe. But uh, with with regard to what you're bringing up about. Uh, migration, I guess, in North America and globally with globalism. I, I tend to view globalism as the integration of markets, governments, and countries. So the immigration issue is definitely huge in that. Uh, there, there's definitely an element of integrating countries into larger global structures, supranational structures, as you're saying, and uh, migration plays big into that. I did not time uh, my my uh, North American migrant coverage so well. <laughs> so I, in uh, several years back, I was in a bunch of hot spots in the Balkans in uh, right after September 2015, August, 20, I think it was August 2015, uh, when then German Chancellor Angela Merkel announced infamously announced refugees welcome. I, I was in the Balkans back then and I was I went to a bunch of hot spots. Uh, Idomeni was one of the more infamous ones on the Greek Macedonian border, but I, I went all over covering uh, the migrant crisis and I saw a lot more action there than I did on the the US Mexican border at Tijuana or, basically in Tijuana and uh, the Guatemalan Mexican border down along the Suchate river. I went to those spots during COVID in 2020, a couple of times. Well, the first time was before, right before the lockdown. So uh, I caught the tail end of a migrant caravan that was going up through Guatemala and into Mexico and some made it into Mexico, some were stopped. What happened was then Trump was president and Trump basically pressured AMLO into doing something about the issue. And what AMLO did was he sent the National Guard down to the, to the Guatemalan border and lined them up along the river. And I got lots of shots of that both times that I was there. And, and those guys gave a beating to the migrants that they found and the migrants that they caught. And there were other Mexican officials spread out throughout Southern Mexico tracking down migrants. And I did some reporting on that back when Trump was president. So since, since Biden's taken over, I have not been on any of the, well, I mean, I guess there's one main 
<laughs> border to report on in the, the in North America right now with regard to the migrant situation. That's the U.S.-Mexico border. And I haven't been back there since Biden took office. But what I'm seeing from photos and videos and what I'm hearing, it, I mean, it just seems like a huge free-for-all. It, it actually, it's it seems a bit reminiscent of what I saw in the Balkans in the fall of 2015 and early 2016, when any given day there could be thousands of people just by bus, by train, by foot, crossing border after border, making their way up through Greece, up through the Balkans into Central Europe. I guess maybe it's not quite to that extent. Uh, I remember when the countries in Southeastern Europe and probably Greece even more so were, were literally just putting migrants on public buses and trains and just sending them to the next country as they made their way to Germany, Sweden, wherever, largely Germany. I don't, I, I guess it hasn't gotten to that point. I guess there isn't that much globalism uh, in North America right now, but it, it seems like there's a lot of it. I, I do recall reading the news some years ago, uh, at least here in Croatia, that the Croatian uh, authorities, police, were very strict uh, about you know not letting uh, migrants into uh, Croatia. In any case, I think most of them just go up in north to France and, and, and Germany and these other uh, more wealthier nations. In that regard, I kind of view my country and uh, my other countries of Croatia as the Mexico uh, of the United States of Europe. And so I, in any case, they all go up north just like from Mexico, they go up to the U.S. And uh, you tweeted recently uh, that well, you're... Uh-huh. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Maybe the Balkans as a whole would be the, the Mexico of Europe. Because I, I, I remember I remember the main routes. And Croatia was pretty much never on the main route. But then some things would pop up, like Orban would build the fence at the border. And then migrants would start veering off on different routes, like through Croatia. Yeah, I'd agree. I, when, when I lived in Geneva in Switzerland, uh, I met a local... Uh, barista uh, Serbian, and she was saying, uh, "Us from the Balkans, the Croat Serbs, Bosnians, we are the Mexicans uh, of Switzerland because we do all these sorts of jobs that the Swiss don't want to do." Which is funny. I don't have any problem <laughs> with that. Um, but you're you're uh, in Turkey. I hope you're enjoying the Turkish coffee and baklava. Uh, I love that stuff. And um, you tweeted that you said it doesn't feel too different than pre-COVID. Uh, uh, I mean, in many places now, I still can't believe. In Mexico, people are wearing masks, but here in Croatia, I haven't seen a mask. Um, my biggest fear is sort of this medical tyranny and this social credit system, basically the vaccine passport, which I view as a social credit system, where if you're not vaxxed or you don't have this passport in many countries or different parts of the world, you are not allowed to go into a supermarket, travel, work. It's like uh, the Chinese, you know, dystopian totalitarian system uh do you think they're gonna and we're hearing rumblings now of monkeypox and polio and masks coming back in some jurisdictions do you think they're gonna try to lock us down again this fall uh or or, or winter and you know any thoughts on the you know these digital control systems like the the vaccine passport and social credit system sorry i've got a dog walking in here and sneezing uh, that tweet that tweet was from sofia i believe i think sofia bulgaria I think I, oh, tweeted out, okay. I think I tweeted out a photo of Sofia in the city center and I was saying it wasn't feeling too differently. Uh, yeah, I was, I was just in Bulgaria for five days or so. And uh, I could talk about that, but this, 
I've spent a lot more time in Turkey than in Bulgaria over the past few years, although I used to live in Bulgaria, but I can speak far more to the COVID situation in Turkey, although I guess I've now gotten a refresher on it in, in Bulgaria. There, there are still some masks in Bulgaria, but not many. And I think Bulgaria is pretty uh, well known for being one of the more anti-vax, vax hesitant countries in all of Europe, definitely in the EU. I think it's known as the most in the EU. Uh, Turkey has been all over the place with COVID. Right now there are no COVID restrictions in Turkey, but I've experienced the full spectrum, which for me hasn't been the worst because I'm basically a foreigner treated as a tourist here, but I was here during, I was in Istanbul during multiple lockdowns and there was one there was one lockdown last year during Ramadan where they really, they really shut down, <laughs> shut down the city. I'm not so sure about countrywide. I think it was pretty much countrywide, but Istanbul turned into a ghost town. And if you've got a city of 20 million people and you're, you're, you're walking around, and <laughs> you see like two or three people on the street after walking for three minutes. Yeah. There's, there's something wrong. And that couple, so I mean, all, all the pressure put on businesses and, and people's ability to earn a living coupled with the massive inflation that was already taking place in Turkey. People, people around the world have, have uh, gotten a big dose of inflation over the past couple of years, but Turks have been getting a huge, have been getting many doses of inflation basically for the past decade. And so economically, things have, things have gotten a lot worse in Turkey. Now, arguably, uh, in some ways, things have bounced back a lot. Property prices spiked way up. Turkey's been having a lot of success with uh, its uh, investment migration programs, lots of Russians pouring in, buying real estate, lots of people from the Gulf and other Arab countries pouring in, buying real estate. Actually, the immigration issue is very complex in Turkey also. Uh, you were asking me about COVID, but there's there's all kinds of dynamics to the political and economic situation in Turkey. But yeah, there's there's just been a Turkey's at some point multiple times had no COVID restrictions, and then there are other times where there's strict lockdowns and practically no one on the street, almost all businesses shut down, big vaccination drives. So Turkey's been all over the place when it comes to COVID. And do you, you feel that, um, you know, we will maintain sort of this freedom to uh, travel or, I mean, do you have a feeling maybe you're seeing more vaccination drives or more people wearing masks or governments asking people to wear masks? Do you think for now we're okay or that, what's your feeling that they might bring back more restrictions soon? In early 2020, when... COVID basically first became a thing. I remember, I remember back when there were just a few articles here and there about some coronavirus in China, but several months later, a couple months after that, whenever it was, when people really started talking about COVID and becoming aware of the situation, I, I said, or I thought to myself, well, governments aren't just gonna go totally crazy and shut the world down. And <laughs> I was essentially wrong. 
So I've learned from that mistake. And personally speaking, now I try to diversify my living situation, not have all my eggs in one basket. I bounce around between Zanzibar, between Istanbul, uh, Los Angeles for family reasons and other places. So I try to have a setup in my life so that if some country shuts things down, some government shuts things down, I can go elsewhere. Uh, that's just me personally speaking, but as far as like a gut inclination as to what governments are going to do, well, I mean, now there's talk about monkeypox. Uh, Canada, I think, is already bringing back more COVID travel restrictions. I don't know if they ever let up with any, <laughs> any kind of restrictions in Canada. Uh, I get the impression that... Certain countries like Bulgaria, for instance, uh, I don't think they want to go back. I don't think the population there is keen on going back to some hardcore COVID tyranny, as you might say it. But then again, uh, I still I still do see pe some people walking around with masks on in Bulgaria. So I just I wouldn't put it past any country to go back to lockdowns, go to try vaccine passports again, or whatever kind of new regulation comes to mind. And maybe it's because COVID, maybe it's because monkeypox, maybe it's because something, something else that comes to mind. It's, it's pretty hard to predict, but the, the general sense that I get is that beware of winter or beware of, beware of Northern winter because someone's going to get sick with something, some, some some virus is, is going to go around. Something's going go. Something's going to happen in terms of public health, and there may be some collective freakout. So I just try to be able to be as flexible and as mobile as possible. Yeah, I feel the same way uh, as you. I uh, have planted multiple flags and uh, can escape um, to a few different places if I have to or uh, need to. And the feeling is the same here in Croatia. People are just fed up um they don't believe uh, any of this but then the other factor as you say i could see it happening where the government just doesn't care and they slam the boot down on everyone's face and just say lockdown again uh, but i have heard people here uh tell me that there's enough people you know, people might start exploding you know like they might just pots and you know go, go with their pots and pans and just not uh, we might see greater uh pushback and i i also agree with you that you know in the winter you know, be, be aware of the winter. I guess one of my last questions would be, because you're very involved in this uh, journalism and, and independent media, um, how do you see the state of podcasting, journalism, independent media today? Are, are we having an, an impact? And, uh, you know, for people who want to get more uh, into this sort of work, what advice might you have? Uh, go, going back to the, the previous topic. Maybe one last caveat would be that you named Croatia, I named Bulgaria. Well, both Bulgaria and Croatia are in, in, in the EU. And countries like that are probably going to face pressure if, if there's some collective sentiment in the EU that you need to go back to uh, serious COVID restrictions, lockdowns, or whatever, even if the people of Bulgaria don't want it, even the people of Croatia don't want it. That's it's probably risky being anywhere in the EU if, if that kind of political tide uh, returns. But uh, as far as state of journalism and podcasting, I think nowadays I, I just, 
I worry less about, much less about how, how much of an effect people are having, even to some extent, how much of an effect I'm having. And I just try to go about doing my thing. Journalism is as much a passion for me as, as it is a, a work or as it is work or a career path. So if I continue to be able to travel to Ukraine, report on the war there, travel to various borders around the world, cover the migrant crisis, go to Bilderberg every year, report on it, do that kind of stuff that I love doing that I'm passionate about, then I'm happy. If it makes a difference, great. Uh, I know following this Bilderberg, there are lots of people who are contacting me more so than in years past, even when some bizarre things happened to me at Bilderberg. Uh, so I guess I can speak from some experience, uh, from some experience that maybe uh, uh, I guess people are taking note of some of the work I do. I, I know working with the bigger names like Lou Perdowski, for instance, who I do a lot of work for, but more so on the business side than on the reporting side. But uh, uh, yeah, I mean, this, he was on that Tim, he still is quite often on the, the Tim, Tim Cast IRL, the, the Tim Pools podcast. That thing has grown huge. There's, they have, they have billboards advertising it on Times Square. So maybe, maybe that answers your question about podcasting and, and uh, alternative media and journalism nowadays. Yeah. Uh, any any then other thought or final thoughts for us? Well, it's it's interesting weaving together topics like uh, globalism and Davos and uh, and Bilderberg with some of the more standard boots on the ground reporting that I, I do like going to the Guatemala Mexican border, go going around the Balkans covering, uh, uh, the migrant crisis. And it's, it's interesting to hear your take on, on, uh, how, how, uh, those factor into geopolitics and globalism, like you, as you refer to it. Yeah. As well, I see these, a lot of these things, uh, uh as connected and, uh, where would be the best places to find you uh, on the uh, internets and uh, support you? You don't really need to worry about supporting me, but if you if you find me, that's that's plenty good for now. Like you said uh, on YouTube, I'm Josh Friedman or Josh Free YouTube.com/slash Josh Friedman FMP. I'm getting increasingly shadow banned. Uh, <laughs> I'm not so sure if you type in my name in Bilderberg, my stuff will even pop up. That's been a recent development. Uh, at Freeman Reporter on Twitter, nomadicjournalism.com, freemanpost.com. I'm around. You, you can find me. All right. Well, Josh, uh, again, I'll include the links in the description. And thank you for joining me on Geopolitics and Empire. All right. Thanks a lot. It was fun. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list that goes out with each podcast and every weekend with a collection of news headlines. The newsletter and website are our last lines of defense. We're being censored and deplatformed. It's nearly impossible to find Geopolitics and Empire on the Google search engine. We've been blacklisted. YouTube frequently takes down our videos with strikes, Facebook restricts our page, Reddit and Twitter take down posts, 
and after the Associated Press mentioned geopolitics and empire in a 2021 article co-written with NATO, our Patreon account was terminated. Vimeo also terminated our Pro account. The best free way to help geopolitics and empire is to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and subscribe to all of our media channels. You can find the video broadcast now on five platforms. Odyssey, Rockfin, Rumble, BitChute, and Brighteon. You can find the audio broadcast on the podcast ecosystem, SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, and so on. My current favorite social media channels are Twitter and Telegram, but you can also find us on Gab, MeWe, Minds, Float, VK, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Finally, Geopolitics and Empire is in dire need of funding to continue. You can leave a donation, purchase a consultation with the host, or become a member to receive additional benefits. We also produce a weekly broadcast called Dissident Thinker for members and Rockfin subscribers only. We will continue to fight the good fight come hell or high water. Thank you for listening.